you'll turn in your Bibles to James 1, James chapter 1, and we are continuing our mini-series on the transformation of the gospel. If you came today thinking today was our Christmas message, it's next week. We could have done it this week, but because uh, Christmas falls on a Friday, we decided to do that next week. So James chapter 1 today, and the guys have some Bibles, so they're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, they'll get one to you. That's marked at James chapter 1. And we will finish this mini-series today, Christmas message next week, and then on January the 3rd, we'll begin another mini-series that I've decided to do about letting the church be the church in the coming year. So we'll have a few weeks on that theme, and then we will return, I promise, to the series that we suspended for these couple mini-series in the book of Genesis. Alan Bloom, a professor for over 30 years at Yale University, wrote in his book a number of years ago, The Closing of the American Mind. He said, There's only one thing a professor can be absolutely certain of, that almost every student entering the university believes or says he believes that truth is relative. If this belief is put to the test, one can count on the student's reaction. They will be uncomprehending. That anyone should regard the proposition that truth is relative is not self-evident astonishes them, as though he were calling into question 2 plus 2 equals 4. These are things you don't have to think about. That it's a moral issue for these students is revealed by the character of their response when it's challenged. It's a combination of disbelief and indignation. Are you an absolutist? the only alternative they know, and it's uttered in the same tone as, do you really believe in witches? This leads into indignation for someone who believes in witches might well be a witch hunter or a Salem judge. The danger they've been taught to fear from absolutism is not error, but intolerance. Relativism is necessary to openness. And this is the virtue, the only virtue, which all primary education for more than 50 years has dedicated itself to inculcating. Openness and the relativism that makes it the only plausible stance in the face of various claims to truth and various ways of life and kinds of human beings, that is the great insight of our times. The study of history and of culture teaches, according to this view, that all the world was mad in the past. Men always thought they were right, and that led to wars and persecutions and slavery and xenophobia and racism and chauvinism. And the point is not to correct the mistakes and really be right. Rather, it's not to think that you're right at all. But, of course, to abandon belief in absolute truth leads to very dangerous places. To paraphrase Another thinker and author, G.K. Chesterton, when people stop believing absolute truth, they don't believe in nothing, they believe in anything. Now, we would affirm the accuracy of that statement. But unfortunately, we sometimes do so in the abstract, not in the reality of our own lives. We believe absolute truth is objectively true, but not subjectively true. That is, we affirm belief in absolute truth and therefore absolute right and wrong, for instance. But in our own lives, absolute truth is not so rock solid after all. For instance, is it absolutely true that God is in control of all things? 
Yes, we would say. But yes, in the abstract. Is it absolutely true that God is in control of all of your things? And all of the stuff in your life? You see, if we really believe that's true, then it'll affect how we react to our circumstances. But if we merely say we believe it's true, and then when confronted with adversity, we begin to fret and worry and take matters into our own hands, even if it means disobeying God, then the statement God is in control is not really absolutely true in our minds, is it? If I believe God's in control, then I can trust him for that which is beyond my ability and responsibility. Now, I have in the past suggested that each of us consider the situations that we're aware of and involved in as existing in one or both of two circles, the circle of concern and the circle of responsibility. These are two concentric circles with the outside circle labeled concern and the one inside it labeled responsibility. And everything in mine and in your circle of responsibility is also in our circle of concern. But not everything with which I'm concerned is my responsibility. We all have many, many things in our circle of concern. World affairs, next year's election, whether or not the company I work for will be around next year, my child's future and his or her job prospects, what kind of world that they're going to encounter as they enter adulthood. And the list could be as long as our ability to think and brood about such things. But those things are not within my circle of responsibility as I don't directly control their outcome. It's obvious that though I'm concerned about world affairs in the next presidential election, I don't personally control either one of those. My circle of responsibility is what God has assigned to me, assigned to me directly to do. I do not control whether my company will be around next year. But I am responsible to be a faithful and honest and productive employee. I don't control the world my children are going to encounter in the future. But while I have them, I'm responsible to model and teach Christ-likeness to them. My circle of concern, those things I'm not directly responsible for because I'm not in control of them, that circle of concern requires trust in the God who is in control of them. And my circle of responsibility, those things that God has assigned to me as a steward, as a manager of his affairs, those things require obedience on my part. Now, when I, when we fail to trust those things about God for those things about which we're concerned and obey God in those things for which we're responsible. When I fail to trust or obey, it's because I'm believing a lie and not just any lie. I'm believing a lie about God. And the lie is, as we saw last week, God is not great. Or at least he's not great enough. So I have to be in control. And last week we saw that behind every sin or negative emotion is a lie, and in particular, a lie about God. If you fear, if you revere, if you hold in awe something or someone other than God, it's because you believe that it is or they are more awesome, more important than God. 
And therefore, God is not glorious, or at least he's not glorious enough for you. If you want something or someone so much that you're willing to sin to have it or them, it's because you believe it or they offer more than God. And so you believe that God is not good, or at least not good enough. If you're angry about something, you may believe that God has let you down, that God is not good. Or if you're joyless, it may be because you have let God down. And you believe that your chance is over because in your mind, God is not gracious. All of those things are believing lies, lies in particular about God. And for the past two weeks in our three-week mini-series called The Transformation of the Gospel, We started with James chapter 1 that's devoted to the issue of change in the Christian life. And I quickly remind you that God is in the change business and he cares that his people are regularly being changed in conformity to the character of Christ, which is given to us in the Bible. James chapter 1 tells us, beginning in verse 3, that what we claim to believe, God will put to the test. Verse 3 says, the testing of your faith, and that word faith is related to The word belief in your New Testament, in Greek, the original language in which it was written. And so you could say the testing of what we say we believe. Friends, that testing is for the purpose of changing us. The book you hold in your hand, the Bible, is God's change agent. And God's change project, James chapter 1 tells us, began when he gave us life through the word of truth, according to verse 18. And so we should be, according to verse 19, eager to listen to the Word of God. But in order for us to more urgently hear God's Word and not merely listen, we need the humility to see ourselves as we are, warts and all. And that's why verse 21 of chapter 1 says we're to humbly accept the Word that's planted in us. We've seen in these two weeks from verses 22 to 25, That although the Bible's intended to help us change, that purpose will only be achieved if we have a desire for that change. Verses 23 and 24 speak of a man who looks into the Bible like he would a mirror, but he comes to it without intending to make any change. Perhaps he looks into it out of habit or simply because he's supposed to, and then he foolishly goes his way unkempt and unchanged. But verse 25 gives us God's design for his word and the approach that we're to take toward it. It says, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Now, the title of the first message in this mini-series was Change for the Better. And then the title of last week's message was How to Change for the Better. And you see at the top of the outline that's inserted in your program, if you don't have that out yet, please take a look at that. At the top it says, how to change for the better, but part two. And last week we saw four truths that if we're going to change, we must continually turn to. Today we're going to see desires that we must continually turn from. And as I mentioned last week, I'm indebted to author Tim Chester in his book, You Can Change, for many of the insights in this message. Now, friends, we regularly need God's help in order for us to be people who are regularly changing. Let's ask God to help us in this sacred hour. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at what you teach us in your word about who you are and who we are. 
and the gap that exists between your character and ours and how you have designed to make us like the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have started that change project when you called us out of the world and to yourself when we were born again. Lord, we thank you that you are changing us and we thank you for the privilege of being involved in that work that you are doing in changing us. And so help us then, Lord, to desire that change and therefore to listen attentively with hearts that are open to being changed by your commands. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, friends, if deep and lasting change is going to occur, it's going to occur for us at the heart level, not merely at the behavioral level. That is, we'll not undergo a change only of our practices, that is what we do, but we'll also have a change of heart, a change in our desires, what we want to do. And you see the difference, right? I can train myself to change my external behavior, but all the while my heart still wants the things that resulted in my former behavior. And the mirror of the Word of God is designed to penetrate at this very deepest level, the heart level. Hebrews chapter 4 says this about the Word of God. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. This means that if we're going to change, according to the outline we have for you, the very first step to true change is to recognize The root of sin. Recognize the root of sin, which is idolatry. Recognize the root of sin, idolatry. Now, we have too narrow a definition of what idolatry is. I would hazard to say that most of us here, when we think of an idol, we think of something that's carved out of stone or out of wood and to which someone would bow down in religious devotion. But in the Bible, idolatry is more than that. God said of some religious leaders in the first part of your Bible, these men have set up idols in their hearts. So we have the ability to set up idols in our hearts of anyone or anything. And that's why John Calvin said, man's heart is a perpetual factory of idols. Whenever we commit heart or behavioral idolatry, it's because we have first committed spiritual adultery. We've abandoned God for someone or something else. Let me say that again. Whenever we commit heart or behavioral idolatry, it's because we first committed spiritual adultery. Because we've abandoned God for someone or something else. And that's why God said through the prophet Jeremiah, my people have forsaken me. And so they follow other gods to their own harm. Martin Luther said, a God is whatever we expect to provide all good and in which we take refuge in all distress. Whatever you set your heart on and put your trust in that, I tell you, is your true God. One author described it this way. Idolatry may involve explicit denials of God's existence or character, but it may not involve those. It may well come in the form of an over-attachment to something that is in itself perfectly good. An idol can be a physical object, 
a property, a person, an activity, a role, an institution, a hope, an image, an idea, a pleasure, a hero, anything that can substitute for God. Tim Keller says it this way. Our idols are those things we count on to give our lives meaning. They are the things of which we say, I need this to make me happy. Or if I don't have this, my life is worthless and meaningless. The New Testament way of speaking about idolatry is the phrase sinful desires. Anything that we desire, whether a good thing or an evil thing, anything that we desire more than we desire God's pleasure and presence is a sinful desire. And that's why the Bible describes greed as idolatry, because greed is just intensely desiring someone or something. So here's what the New Testament says about that. Put to death. Whatever belongs to your earthly nature, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Your idol is whatever you're greedy for. Whatever you have this intense desire for, it may be money, approval, sex, power, or anything else you want. And Jesus focused our attention in on how important this matter of what we want is. When he said in the Sermon on the Mount... Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whatever you treasure the most is the thing that has your heart and it controls your life. And that process is described very well by the English word captivated. We're made captive by our desires. Our hearts are captured by them. We think we're free when we break away from God, but we become enslaved by our own sinful desires. That's why the Bible says a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. And Jesus said in that same Sermon on the Mount, just a few verses after the one where your treasure is there, will your heart be also. Just a few verses later, he said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and anything or anyone else. But friends, we serve whatever our hearts desire the most. And if that desire is for God and his glory, then God's our master. But if our desire is, for example, for money, then money's our master, and that's idolatry. Sin begins with desire. The practical things we do, the things we practice, our behavior, they start internally with desires. We're not sinners because we commit sinful acts. We commit sinful acts because we're sinners. And we're born with a bias to sin and enslaved by our sinful desires. And that's why we simply cannot change ourselves simply by changing our behavior. We need God to change us from the inside out by renewing our hearts and giving us new desires. If we're going to change for the better, then there are desires that all of us need to continually turn from because we recognize the root of sin is idolatry. And secondly, in your outline, we recognize the root of sin. It's idolatry. It's in our hearts. It's our desires. But then we specify the reality of sin. Recognize the root, but then be specific 
about the reality of sin in our own lives, that is, my idols. Specify the reality of sin, my idols, your idols. Now, desire in itself isn't wrong. Desire is part of being human. We should desire, for example, God in His glory. We should desire that our children obey us and obey God. We should desire, and it's right to desire, that our spouse respects and loves us. These are all good desires, but as with any desire, there are things that we can want too much. In fact, the word that's translated in the New Testament, sinful desires, literally means over-desires. <laughs> over-desires. It's not usually the thing we want that's the problem. It's that we want the thing or the person more than God. To want to be married or to want to be successful or healthy is to desire a good thing. But if my singleness or my failure or illness makes me bitter, then my desire has grown too big, bigger than my desire for God. And as a result, I cannot be content with God's control over my life. But we deceive ourselves into thinking that our desires are righteous and we have godly reason for our discontentment. One common way desires deceive us is by masquerading as, as needs. You know, these over-desires, another way that's translated in your New Testament is lusts. Now, when we use the word lust, we almost without exception refer to sexual desire. But in the Bible, lust is simply a word for intense desire for whatever. It may be lust for the satisfaction of sexual desire, but it may be a lust for something else. And, and yet, when we talk, we don't say, I lust to be loved. We say, I need to be loved. We take a good desire, that is to be loved, and we turn it into an idolatrous desire by calling it a need. God and His glory are then no longer at the center of the way we look at things. Instead, we're at the center, demanding that people, in effect, worship us by giving us affection and affirmation. One author called it a God complex. Someone has said it this way, when a good thing becomes a God thing, God with a small g. When a desire for a good thing becomes a God thing to you, that's a bad thing. When a good thing becomes a God thing, that's a bad thing. So you not only need to recognize that adultery is at the root of our sin problems, but we then need to recognize our particular forms of idolatry. And so you need to ask yourself, I need to ask myself, what do we want that we're willing to sin to obtain or sin because we didn't obtain it? Jesus told us very directly that all of this stuff, all of the external stuff, the way we talk, the way we behave, it all comes from the heart. Luke chapter 6, he said, the good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. The evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart, out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. So please understand, friends, every one of us, me included, every last one of us, what you do and what you say, what I do and what I say, come out of our hearts 
which have these desires, which are very often over desires. So are you bitter? Reflecting regularly and thinking about all the wrongs you've had to endure? It's ultimately an accusation against God's goodness. Are you easily annoyed at other people's incompetence? Yikes. I wish I hadn't put that in there. Man. Because that's me. Easily annoyed. But that's a desire to be in control. Instead of trusting God's sovereignty. Are you angry? When you're angry at your circumstances, you're ultimately angry at God because at root, you believe you deserve better and in effect, you've been shortchanged. You've been ripped off. So how do you fill in the blank of if only I had this? Or if only that hadn't happened, whatever that is. And however you fill in that blank, that's the thing or things that are dominating your thinking and your heart. And how do I know that it's become idolatrous? It's because it brings forth this bad fruit. Just before the passage that is on the on the screen from Luke chapter six, just before that verse, Jesus said this, no good tree bears bad fruit. Nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruits. So what's happening with me? How am I thinking and how am I talking? And then Jesus went on to say the good man brings forth good things. The evil man evil things out of his heart. You know a desire has become idolatrous. When you're willing to sin to get it or you're willing to sin because you don't have it. And when I say sin, I don't mean sin in just your behavior. I mean sin in your words, sin in your attitudes, sin in your thinking. If you're joyless, let me ask you, does the Bible command us to be joyful? Doesn't it? Rejoice in the Lord always. And just to make it clear, I will say it again, says the writer Paul. Rejoice. The Bible commands rejoice. But how many professing Christians do you have that are joyless? And why are they joyless? Joyless because they didn't get something they wanted. They're willing to sin against God's command. To be joyful. So you know a desire has become idolatrous when you're willing to sin to get it or because you don't have it. So, friends, if we're going to change for the better, then there are desires that we must continually turn from. Because we recognize that the root of sin is idolatry. And that the reality is that I and you have our own idols. And then thirdly, we've got to activate the remedy for sin. Activate the remedy. And what is the remedy? The Bible's remedy is repentance. Recognize, understand the root of sin is idolatry. And then specify the reality of sin in my own life, in your own life, that is 
the particular idols that I have, that you have, but then activate the remedy for that, which is repentance. Now, we often define repentance as turning from sin and to God. The New Testament word translated repentance, metanoia, literally means a change of mind. And it's a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. But that change of mind and change of behavior is due, first and foremost, to a change of desire. Because as we've seen, that's the root. So repentance is not just, I'll stop doing what I was doing. Because if the desires are still there, now hear this, you'll do it again. (laughs) Or you'll do something else sinful that's based on that desire. So if we're really going to repent, we've got to get to the desire level. And failure to see that is one reason that in our relationships, forgiveness does not also translate into reconciliation. Seeking a forgiveness should mean reconciliation between parties. But very often, we do the forgiveness thing, but the relationship is still not repaired. And that's because we ask forgiveness for discrete, itemized, individual actions. And then forgiveness is granted. But unless there's a recognition of the heart issues that gave rise to those things we're asking forgiveness about then our so-called reconciliation will be what I call transactional rather than transformative. That is, we just go through the motions. I do something, I say something sinful to or against you. And so I come to you and I say, uh, I said this or I did this, will you forgive me? You say, yes, I forgive you. The transaction is done. But unless I recognize that that thing I said or did comes from a heart, a heart that needs to be changed, a heart that needs to be transformed, I'm back next week doing it again. So it's transactional rather than transformative. Now, a model for how we're to repent can be found in Galatians chapter 5. And if you have your Bibles and you're able to find Galatians 5, I'd encourage you to take a look there. Galatians 5. Because there the Bible speaks of the acts of the sinful nature versus the fruit of the Spirit. So in Galatians 5, you've got the acts of the sinful nature, and then you have what should replace those, which are the fruit of the the Spirit. And verse 16 of Galatians 5 says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now you see the desires there? Literally, these over-desires I was talking about earlier, that's that, that. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh or the desires of the sinful nature if you walk in the Spirit. That's verse 16 of Galatians 5. But then in verses 22 and 23, there is famously the nine listed fruits of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, I want you to notice something about that list. At the very beginning of the list, those nine things are called the fruit of the Spirit, singular. So here's what we sometimes do. 
We sometimes think, you know, you got those nine there. I got a couple of them down. But see, the, those who have the Spirit are to be manifesting all of these things. They're the singular fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit looks like this. So you can't and I can't be content to say, you know, I'm a third of the way there. I got three out of nine. One author says when we look at that list of fruits, we, we notice that we're naturally stronger in some than in others. But our strengths, apart from the Holy Spirit, are due to natural temperament. We have a trait through brain chemistry or early childhood training. Or they're due to natural self-interest. We learned a trait in order to handle some issue or condition we met. For example, some people are temperamentally gentle and diplomatic. And so that would look like the fruit of the spirit of gentleness, wouldn't it? But the sign that this is not due to the work of the Holy Spirit is that such people are usually not bold or courageous. That would be faithfulness. Because of what this passage says about the unity of this fruit, this means that that sort of gentleness is not real spiritual humility. It's just temperamental sweetness. Yow. And that's why so many of us mistake people who are nice for Christians. I mean, I had somebody tell me a few weeks ago about a guy that we both mutually met through doing business with this guy. And he's a really nice guy. But the person said to me, no, I, th- I think he's a Christian. Oh, really? Why? He's just such a nice guy. He, and he is a very nice guy. Uh, I've talked to him subsequently, that guy, the nice guy. He's a Hindu. I gave him a book, Jesus Among Other Gods, written by a former Hindu who's converted to Jesus. So we mistake niceness for fruit of the Spirit. People can be naturally nice and still unsaved and not have the Spirit. And there are many, many cases like this. Some folks seem happy and bubbly, and we think that's the joy of the Spirit. And they're good at meeting new people, but they're very unreliable and they can't keep friends. That would be faithfulness. This is not real joy, but just being an extrovert by nature. Some people seem very unflappable and unbothered. That would look like the peace that is the fruit of the Spirit, but they're not kind or gentle. It's not real peace, but it's really indifference and perhaps cynicism. It enables you to get through the difficulties of life without always being hurt, but it desensitizes you and makes you much less approachable. So, friends, don't be fooled by counterfeit fruit of the Spirit. How then can the fruit of the Spirit take root in our lives and be produced in our lives? First, we need to remember, according to verse 24 of Galatians 5, that we belong to Christ Jesus, it says. All that is his is ours, if you can believe that. All that is Jesus is is ours. We belong to him. Our approval then and welcome from the Father, God the Father, rests not on our character actions, but on Jesus. 
We're free then to acknowledge where we've given up ground to the sinful nature in our lives. We're free to confess where we've not sought to keep in step with the Spirit, as we're told in Galatians 5. We're free to realize where we've confused our gifts or natural character with the fruit of the Spirit. So first, recognize you belong to Christ Jesus and the security that goes with that. But secondly, we have to ask ourselves not just what we do wrong, but why we do it wrong. We disobey God in order to get something we feel we have to have. It's an over-desire. But why must we have it? Why must we have it? It's because it's something that we've come to believe will authenticate us. To crucify the sinful nature, as we're told in this chapter, is to say, Lord, my heart thinks that I must have this thing, otherwise I have no value. Lord, it's become a pseudo-false savior to me. But to think and feel and live like this is to forget what I mean to you, how you see me in Christ. By your spirit, I will reflect on your love for me in him until this thing loses its attractive power over my soul. And then third, we need to, according to verse 25, keep in step with the spirit. This is a a positive process. It's not simply giving things up, but it's an active process, something we're to do. And it's more than simple obedience, though it's not less than obedience. Keeping in step with the Spirit is because the Spirit's a living person who glories and magnifies the work of Jesus. And once we specifically find the particular false beliefs of our sinful nature, which generate these over desires and lead us to sin, then we must replace them with Christ, with the help of the Holy Spirit, adoring him until our hearts find him more beautiful than the object we felt we had to have. And as we do that, we put to death our old sinful nature, clearing room for the fruit of the Spirit to grow. And we will find that fruit growing, changing us more and more into the people that we long to be and that God desires us to be. The 19th century Scottish Scottish theology professor Thomas Chalmers spoke and wrote of what he called the expulsive power of a new affection, a new desire. Now, I'm going to read something he says here. And the way he says it is kind of 19th century wordy. But just stay with it and I'll explain. He says there are two ways in which we attempt to displace from our heart its love of the world. Either by a demonstration of the world's vanity, so that the heart will withdraw its regards from an object that is not worthy of it. Or by setting forth another object, even God, as more worthy of its attachment. So that the heart shall be prevailed upon not to simply reject an old affection which shall have nothing to succeed it. But to exchange an old affection for a new one. He's saying that we turn from idolatry either because we've come to recognize the thing or person we idolized is not really all that after all. Or... By seeing someone or something that is more worthy of our devotion. We replace that desire with a better desire. Now, if all that's true, and it is. Then what that means is when you sin and when I sin. It's all caused by some sinful desire rooted in my heart, in your heart. 
And that means that I've replaced God off the throne and in my actions and attitudes and words, I am saying to God, God, you're not enough. And sometimes when I counsel folks, I ask them, can you say that? Can you just say, just like God, why don't you just say to God what you're actually living like? You're not enough. You're not good enough. You're not glorious enough. You're not great enough. You're not gracious enough. And if the person is a believer, they can't utter those words from their lips. And I'm thankful for that. (laughs) That's the Holy Spirit of God restraining them. But it's a way to starkly show them and to show us what we're really saying in the way we act and speak and in our attitudes. So I say in your outline, if we're going to repent, we've got to believe that God is bigger than my sinful desires. God's bigger than my desire for control. My annoyance, people's incompetence, God's bigger than their incompetence. Remember that, Ken. I've got to believe that God's bigger than my sinful desires. I've got to believe that God is better than my sinful desires. Bigger and better. And we've got, in our grasp, And if we belong to Jesus, we have in our hearts, we have God, the Holy Spirit, in relationship, intimate relationship with us. And we chase after other desires, which by definition are infinitely less worthy. How foolish, dear friends. How foolish of me. How foolish of you. And Isaiah spoke to this foolishness in Isaiah 55 when he asked, Why spend money on what is not bread? And your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen. Listen to me and eat what is good. And your soul will delight in the richest affair. Is there anyone or anything better than God? Our sin says, yeah. Our sinful desires say, yes. But friends, in so doing, we are spending on what is not bread. We are laboring for what does not satisfy. Your take-home truth, then, is that lasting change comes through radical transformation. Radical transformation. Not transactional, transformational. Radical means to the root. And the root means the heart. And the heart is where our desires reside. Who or what do we desire most? Let's bow before the Lord. Father, we thank you again for the grand and undeserved privilege of being able to contemplate Your truth about you and us. And about what you have done to remedy us and our problems. In the Lord Jesus and in the gift of the Holy Spirit that he gives. Lord, we have at our disposal all things. And the one who did not spare his own son, how will he not also along with him not graciously give us all things? 
So, Lord, you have promised that. Lord, you have shown that goodness to us, and yet we reject it in our sinful desires. As if there is someone or something that could ever approach your glory, your goodness, your great greatness, your graciousness to us. Lord, our hearts are put to the test. And what we say we believe is put to the test in the circumstances that you allow in our lives. And oh, how many times we fail. Help us, Lord, to to activate the remedy for sin, which is radical root repentance, repenting of the false desires that lead us astray, exchanging those desires for the desires for you, because you indeed are enough. Oh, Lord, I pray that your people are doing that in this sacred moment. I pray that we'll do that this week. I pray, Lord, that things that have plagued families, individuals, mothers, fathers, husbands, wives, children, pastors, deacons, no matter what situation you have placed us in, we have been plagued and we often go through the same things over and over and over again. Because we have not experienced the expulsive power of a new affection. Oh, Lord, replace our affection for the world and its desires, which pass away with an affection first and only for you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.